about these prefixes, these negation prefixes, we have more than we think. If we grew up speaking English, we kind of take these things for granted. There are so many words that have very specific Roman meanings in English. Coming up on Word Matters, decimating the decimate dictate and the different semantic territory covered by uninvite and disinvite. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. Some people care so deeply about how a particular word should and should not be used that they allow relationships to be decimated when someone fails to follow their linguistic strictures. Ammon relays the tale of just such a decimation, this one over the word decimate itself. We spend a lot of time at Merriam-Webster, not just researching words and the the meanings of words and the way that they're used, but also we spend a lot of time researching people's perceptions of words and how they feel about usage and Occasionally grammar as well. And so we come across a lot of heated discussions of words and a lot of strongly held opinions. And sometimes these are people disagreeing with us, and sometimes they're people who agree with us. Sometimes they're angering, and sometimes they're just kind of funny. And I have to say my favorite one that I ever came across, I think, was in looking at how people feel about the word decimate. I came across the post on Twitter. It was posted July of 2015, and the hashtag was got dumped because, and people are obviously explaining why they got dumped. Mm -hmm. And this worthy grammarian says, got dumped because I insisted she learned that decimate means to reduce by one-tenth. It doesn't mean wiped out, Vicky. Vicky, if you're out there, please know that this is a heartfelt congratulations from (laughs) all of us here at (laughs) Merriam-Webster. Decimate does not have to mean reduce by one-tenth. And if somebody insists that you learn that it does, that is an excellent reason for dumping them. I'm curious about, which is not just what the correct meaning or incorrect meaning or what the possible meanings of decimate are. What I'm more interested in is why people are so bent on decimate having this meaning. And in case you're new to this, in which case you're very, very lucky that some (laughs) portion of your life has not been wasted by this nonsense. There's this idea that decimate has one primary meaning that is the the true meaning and that that meaning is to reduce something by one-tenth and that to use it in any other sense as in the crops were decimated or we decimated the enemy's forces by killing all of them that all these other meanings are somehow incorrect and this is very peculiar i think because decimate did in fact used to mean to reduce by one-tenth and there was a roman system of punishment for the military it's used to keep strict control over the legions. And speaking of which, keeping control over the legions, legion used to be a very specific term with a very, very specific meaning. We don't insist that legion has that meaning anymore. And what was Uh, that? Legion was was the principal unit of the Roman army, and it comprised 3,000 to 6,000 foot soldiers with cavalry. If you talk about there were legions and legions of soldiers today, and somebody says, has to be between three and six thousand and they have to be <laughs> foot soldiers and they have to be with cavalry people would say what is wrong with you that's just such an awkward distinction that nobody really makes anymore and it is not really in any way applicable to modern day use and there was this term centurion 
Centurion was one of those soldiers that was kind of an elite soldier, an officer. Right. And the idea was either that they commanded 100 men or that they were one in 100. Right. They commanded 100 men because century itself was the original meaning in English was referring to a subdivision of the Roman legion. There are so many words that had very specific Roman meanings in English when they first came in. Missile. Missile, originally, when it was used in English, referred to gifts thrown to the crowds by Roman emperors. Oh, no kidding. Innovation was a certain kind of military parade that was given. It was less than a triumph, which oh, was a great military parade. Triumph. But, there's another one that has a very specific meaning that is obviously not respected broadly in English anymore. Absolutely. And it's not even that words from Roman times have changed meaning, because of course that makes sense. It's, people then like to say, well, but it's etymologically incorrect, because deca, it comes from the decim, word meaning 10, and so it has to kill one in every 10. Nobody ever insists that a dean still has to be in charge of 10 students or 10 people, even though that was the original meaning of dean in English. And oh, nobody really? insists that December cannot be the 12th month because <laughs> December comes from the word for 10. We're fine with this kind of etymological fluidity when we don't know about it or when it's kind of seen as just a regular word. But this, to me, really brings back the question of why are there so many partisans who feel that decimate should have this, quite frankly, totally illogical and insane meaning. And I'm guessing that that decimate, that original meaning, which is sort of horrible to think about, was also fairly rare. Such a specific thing. It was rare then. It's considerably more rare now. <laughs> I mean, when was the last time you needed to talk about something being totally wiped out? Mm -hmm. It happens pretty frequently. When was the last time you needed to specifically refer to one of every 10 of something being removed? It's not so current. Now, this entire phenomenon is what we call etymological fallacy. Is that correct? It is. It's this idea that the etymology of a word should not just influence, but govern, in many cases, restrict the word's mm -hmm. current meaning. Which is why we, of course, know that a symposium has to be a drunken bacchanal, because a symposium was drinking and carousing together back in the day, are why we now know that all left-handed people are sinister, because it <laughs> comes from the word sinistrous. And of course, a word's etymology is, is useful in some cases in ascertaining meaning, but it does not govern the word meaning. Not because... in contemporary use. Think no, of terms like quintessential, for example, because the fifth essence had some kind of magical property in the ancient world. But I don't think anyone is thinking about that when they say quintessential. And just right. think of the way that we use the word stigmatize, for example. I don't think we're using it literally in the etymological sense. So why is it that decimate has these adherents? Is it that people are trying to make order in a chaotic, senseless world? Is it that they just like to correct other people? Is it that they secretly want Vicky to break up with them and this is the <laughs> easiest way to go about it because they don't have the heart to say that this isn't right for me? I don't know. It reminds me of the problem with the term literally when literally is used in its figurative sense, you know, when literally is used as an intensifier and therefore it has this sort of semantic bleaching that it doesn't actually mean by the letter or exactly. And it strikes me that these are two examples of specific English usage peeves that people carry with them for a long, long time. And I do think that you actually touched on something. I think that people like the little factoid. The story behind Decimate is extremely memorable. And if you know it, then you'll never forget that meaning. And then therefore, every time you encounter that word, you'll think of it. There's a piece of this that is just sort of connected to historical trivia. 
that is part of it, I guess. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see so many etymological fallacies or so many kind of the bad explanations of words, like the wrong etymology of posh or right, 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 right. <laughs> things like that, you know, poor outward starboard home, things that have no basis. In fact, it's because they're usually nice stories. You know, these mistaken etymologies you hear, they're not usually bad stories. They're just bad explanations. They're sure. memorable stories. The stories are actually like too that. good in some ways because they end up being more memorable for a lot of people. In almost all cases, I feel like if you hear a really great etymology, it should kind of make you suspect immediately because, <laughs> quite honestly, most of them are pretty boring. I think that the real reason, and this is just a guess on my part, but I think based in part on evidence like this tweet about the lucky Vicky, I think that many people enjoy words like this because they like to correct other people. There's no question um, that that is a very, very widespread use of the dictionary, which is to correct somebody else. It has to be said, if you're a teacher or a parent, that's great. There's no problem with that. But sometimes it is kind of just like using it as a bat to hit some other people with. I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say that if you are the kind of person that insists that your girlfriend or boyfriend or significant other in any way, if you are willing to go on Twitter and say that I insisted that they <laughs> learn this distinction, you might want to take a little re-examination of your prescriptivist tendencies. <laughs> What I like about that, and here's where I make common cause with someone who would present that, because I have encountered people who are very careful with the use of language and who care deeply about the language, and really that's what they're expressing. They're saying, I care so much about this that I don't want to hear it misused. And unfortunately, it's almost like they only understood half of the dictionary definition, because really what in contemporary English, what the word means is much more important than showing off, essentially, that you know the etymology. We love that adherence to specificity in language. We all care about language. That's great. I think that is something commendable. We hear people say it, I'm paraphrasing, but everybody uses this word wrong. I hate it. And the problem for us is that now we've crossed a very significant distinction here, which is that for us, when everybody uses a word, it no longer matters whether it's right or wrong. <laughs> right. It is de facto right. That is how we define a meaning is everybody uses it. So to us, that's a contradiction in terms. Oh, absolutely. Everybody uses it wrongly. And this gets to other things. We are, as a species, we are closely attached to what is familiar. Language is a habit. So if this was the way that our term was used in our region or our home or the way that our teachers insisted that really did stick with us, then it becomes a point of pride to hold to those traditions. It reminds me of my little pinned tweet on Twitter. Most English speakers accept the fact that the language changes over time, but don't accept changes that are made in their own time. The language changes just fast enough that we notice, but we almost always hate the changes that we notice. One of the things that I like to bring up as well is that people often accuse us as a dictionary of kind of abdicating our responsibility and saying, oh, you're willing to let anything go. And that's not at all true. We're trying to define common usage or notable usage when it's widespread. We're not allowing anything into the dictionary. So for instance, decimate is not synonymous with devastate. So right. were this fellow or this woman to have written, got dumped, Vicky left me and I'm decimated, we would consider that kind of a wrong usage. It doesn't carry the meaning the word is generally understood to have. And so if he says, however, we're not going to allow just any use of decimate into the dictionary. It's a very specific one that has considerable amount of evidence behind it. 
And that's our job is just to observe. And it is a delicate thing because people care about language. They want a kind of permanence to the language. And it's true that we revere good stylists, good writers who we would say are timeless in their phrasing and choices of words. But the fact is, the language does change all the time. So the dictionary is there to represent a kind of record of the standard usage of these terms. And that standard usage does shift over time. It's just shifting very slowly. So for a professional writer or an editor or a student, it's important to know what are the conventions. And really, the dictionary is a map. And we hope that you can be guided by that map. We do hope that. And we also hope, Vicky, wherever you are, that you have found someone who does not insist that you learn the ostensibly correct meaning of decimate. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. Peter and Ammon will be right back with a discussion about disinvite and uninvite. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm Ammon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for the Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. An uninvited guest is one who never received an invitation, while a disinvited guest had their invitation revoked. Fortunately for you, dear listener, you're invited, no prefixes of undoing here, to listen in as Peter leads an exploration of this puzzling pair. So, Ammon, I have a quick quiz question for you. Which of the following two words is an entry in both the Samuel Johnson Dictionary and the Noah Webster Dictionary? Disinvite or uninvite? I'm going to go with un. Well, actually, disinvite is the word that they both defined, which is kind of amazing that they did define disinvite, but they didn't define uninvite. Did neither one of them define uninvite? Right. Nope. As far as I know, in their lifetime, they did have the adjective uninvited, but not the verb uninvite, which is sort of interesting. What I find peculiar about this is that Samuel Johnson was obviously invited many places. He was a a garrulous, well-known man, but I could certainly see Noah Webster being uninvited. (laughs) So you would think that he would have at least a a passing familiarity with the concept, (laughs) if not the actual word. It's true that he sort of does come down to us as a bit of a sourpuss and maybe problematic socially. It's interesting that we have these two words in English. It's kind of another case of these near synonyms that are formed with different prefixes. Disinvite, uninvite, we understand them transparently. We understand them without hesitation. And yet 
They have slightly different histories. The thing about these prefixes, these negation prefixes, we have more than we think. If we grew up speaking English, we kind of take these things for granted. But there's un and there's non, but also in, of course, and dis and a, like atypical. So dis, like dysfunctional or dishonest. There's imperfect and irregular and illogical, which all actually go back to the same roots. Nonconformist and unpopular. Those are the way that we negate adjectives in English. Some of them are used that way because of phonetics more than etymology. So, for example, irregular or irresistible has IR, but illegible has IL. Those are simple changes made for the phonetics sure. of the word. Immutable, so innumerable. Those are all actually the same negation prefix, but they have melted to fit the phonetics of the word they're linked to. These prefixes are all essentially based on Latin roots, but there is, of course, un, un, which is from Old English, sort of the granddaddy of all of these in the English language. But the dis in Latin, which means apart or in different directions, also brings the idea of undoing something like disarm or disinherit or dishonor. But also dis has a kind of analog for the positive side. So discord, if it's a negative term, has concord, which is a positive term, or disjunct and conjunct, or dissent and consent, or dissonance and consonance. So that con, which means with or together, sort of pairs well with dis frequently in the English language. And it's also, by the way, dis is the prefix that we use in words like differ or diffuse. And we might not think of those as prefixes. But those were actually connected so long ago that now we just think of them as being one word. Think of a term like descant, which means singing apart or singing in two parts or counter melody. I think that's interesting because cant from cantare, cant means to sing, and the dis means to sing apart. Something else I think we should point out, though, is that in some of these cases, these prefixes are kind of interchangeable. Perhaps the best known case is disinterested and ununderstood. Oh, of course. Um, Many times we hear people say that disinterested should only mean this one specific thing, which is impartial, and uninterested should only mean this very distinct thing, which is bored. Or Yet indifferent. When, when the right? words first came into English use in the early 17th century, they had the opposite meaning. In first use, disinterested was clearly used to mean lacking interest. Uninterested was clearly used to mean not biased. I was going to say these must have swapped because these are kind of classic usage bugaboos for good right. editors. And to be honest, I pay attention to this distinction. They did flip early on. They flipped almost 400 years ago. But it's worth noting that when they did come into the language, they had a very distinct different meaning than they have today. Yeah, and uninterested and disinterested, that's one to kind of keep straight for yourself because it's one of those things that will attract attention in the wrong kind of way, that people will stop hearing what your point is and start criticizing your choice of vocabulary, which is never what you want as a writer. The thing about dis and un are from two different roots. Dis comes from Latin and un comes from English. Dis is typically attached to Latin-based words, but sometimes it is attached to old English-based words. So we have a handful of these like dislike or disown, disbelieve hmm. or distrust. So, of course, Latin is well established in English. And so we have connected these words cross etymologies in that particular way. And sometimes when we use these two prefixes in more distinct ways than disinterested and uninterested. So think of the word disgraceful, which is not the same thing as ungraceful, which I think is interesting. We can make a distinction and keep terms far apart, and sometimes we make a distinction and they're just a few degrees apart. But getting back to the unusual pair of uninvite and disinvite, 
one thing that these terms have as very distinct differences is the adjectives uninvited, as in an uninvited guest, and uninviting, meaning like an uninviting odor. They're almost completely used in those ways and have no competition from what you might call competing forms, disinvited and disinviting, which we almost never see in English. So in some ways, these words have landed right where they want to be. Uninvited and uninviting have no competition the way that the verb does. But disinvite can be used to mean to withdraw an invitation, which is exactly the way we understand uninvite. So this is where we get to this weird thing that both Johnson and Webster in 1755, 1828 respectively, they did define disinvite but not uninvite, but they liked the adjective uninvited. This is one of those cases where we have the adjective going one way but the verb going another way. Did they also define the present participle, uninviting? No, neither Webster nor Johnson defined uninviting, but they may have looked at that as a kind of predictable form. And there's sometimes a a little bit of a bias against those present participle adjectives. But past participle adjectives are much more likely. Because they're more common. And present participle ones are usually predictable. They sometimes become gerunds. That's a different conversation for a different day. But if we get back to this interesting point about uninvite and disinvite, it does seem that disinvite has sort of won the day. Webster's second from 1934 had an entry for disinvite. And then it only had a special entry for uninvite. It said rare. It had the label rare for uninvite. But here's the thing. Over those 80 years since, it is no longer rare. It's a term that is almost interchangeable with disinvite. So we do find that these two words, which sort of started in different places, disinvite had a big head start on uninvite. But now we see that they're almost finishing as a tie in current usage. Miraculously, they both still apply to Noah Webster. Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Ammon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.